3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. By law, online platforms are not liable for the content their users post. This has helped sites like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube grow exponentially, attracting millions of users with photos and comments to share. And without that protection, the internet as we know it might not exist today. But a rising call for guardrails as violence and hate spread on social media has brought a pair of cases in front of the Supreme Court this week, with potentially far-reaching consequences on internet speech. We'll talk about how the justices appeared to be leaning and how they might rule after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Should online platforms be held responsible if their algorithms promote content related to acts of terrorism? Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act generally protects platforms like YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook from being held liable for the comments, photos, or videos that users post, even when it's unlawful. But does that protection go away when a program of the company's own creation, its algorithms that sort and recommend content, make it appear in users' feeds? That's one of the questions now before the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard a pair of cases earlier this week, Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tomna, that have tech companies and First Amendment advocates on edge. To help us understand the stakes, we're joined by Daphne Keller, Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford Law School. Daphne Keller, thanks so much for being with us. Also, with us is Sophia Cope, senior staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Sophia, really glad to have you as well. Thanks for having me. Daphne, I'd love to start with you. Could you start by describing the two cases, which both have tragic origins? And let's actually start with the one that's been getting relatively less attention, if that's okay. That would be Tom v. Twitter. What's that case about?
4: Sure, so, uh, and really thank you for having me here. It's a a treat to come on and talk about these cases. Uh, The two cases, as you say, that both have tragic origins. The plaintiffs in both cases uh, have family members who were killed in ISIS attacks, in one case in Paris, and in the other case in Istanbul, and they sued a number of platforms. Uh, The platforms that wound up being the defendants before the Supreme Court were Twitter in the Twitter v. Tomna case and YouTube or Google in the um, Gonzalez v. Google case. Um, The theories that the plaintiffs advanced throughout the case kind of changed over time, which may matter to how the cases turn out, but the version of the question that got to the Supreme Court um, in the Tomna case is setting aside immunities under Section 230, under this big immunity statute that you mentioned. um, If you looked at the underlying claim, which is that Twitter services violated the Anti-Terrorism Act, is that in fact the case? Could these plaintiffs even prevail on the basic claim about the Anti-Terrorism Act if there were no 230 immunity. And that boils down, I mean, there are a whole bunch of statutory factors and elements and blah, 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 but it it really boils down to two key questions. One is, can Twitter um, be said to have known about ISIS content in a situation where every time they did know about ISIS content, they took it down as far as we know. So the question is, it just because they knew there was probably more out there, did they know enough to be liable? And the second question under the statute is, were they substantially assisting in the ultimate uh, act of terrorism that took place or in causing, contributing to the ultimate act of terrorism that took place? Again, in a situation where they prohibited ISIS content, they took it down when they were aware of it. But the plaintiff's point is that they they could have done more.
3: I see. So Basically, the question is, does allowing ISIS videos on your website and even having them appear and surface um, in Twitter feeds, does that count as aiding and abetting a terrorist act, which if it did, it would violate anti-terrorism law? Yes,
4: and... The you know the because the other case the um, the section two hundred and thirty case that we'll talk about in a minute uh, increasingly over the course of the litigation came to focus on the ranking and recommendation function and whether that in itself you know punctured the immunity of two hundred and thirty. The Tomna case, which is the case about the merits of the Anti-Terrorism Act claim, also kind of morphed into a claim that's about ranking and recommendation. But it was sort of of a change of convenience at the last minute in the case.
3: So talk about the other case, Gonzalez v. Google. Yeah,
4: Gonzalez v. Google is... again, stems from very similar and and horrific facts. And again, it is a claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act. But just for reasons of how the um, cases played out in the courts below, that one wound up going up to the Supreme Court as a question about immunity under Section 230, this this major platform immunity law that you mentioned. Um, And the plaintiff's theory before the Supreme Court Again, evolved a little bit, but the, it, it is either that, um, YouTube, was stepping outside an ordinary platform role and itself contributing to the harm in a way that is outside of the immunity by ranking the content in you know in order in the recommendations uh, or also that it did so it lost the immunity by targeting content individually um, to diff you know showing different people different things based on their behavior and
3: interests. Sophia, can, can you explain why section 230 has been credited with quote-unquote creating the internet like why it has the importance that
2: it holds right now sure so uh you explained the basics of it very well at the top of the show which is that uh, the main provision in section 230 states that platforms or what we often call internet intermediaries they are not uh to be held responsible or liable for the content that, uh, is, uh, that's posted by their users or otherwise or sort of transits their, um, their, uh, their uh, internet systems or, or networks. And so back in 1996, uh, Congress could see the promise of the internet. They could see that it had great potential for democratizing speech, democratizing access to information. And so they put in this very simple provision, uh, uh, 26 words to be exact. And uh, the the idea is that by um, immunizing and not absolutely like there are exceptions to Section 230C1, but by generally immunizing um, these Internet intermediaries, that they will actually exist for all of us to use. And so from EFF's perspective, um. We don't see this as what some in Congress have called a gift to big tech. We actually see this as a fundamental uh, internet law that allows all of us to speak and reach millions and billions of users, and you know other other folks. So,
3: because this section that says that no provider. Um I think they call it of an interactive computer service, shall be treated as the speaker of the information. So, for example, if you share information, you won't be treated as the speaker who would be liable if they did something unlawful. Um, that this applies to all of us, not just platforms, but also to users, to consumers, Sophia.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, there, there's a language in there that says both uh, ICSs are are protected as well as users. So, what does that mean? So, I, I had just uh, talked about how Section Two Thirty is really important for users, uh, uh, and to the extent that if platforms are protected, then the platforms will exist. They'll be, um, uh, so, uh, they'll have legal breathing room, right, to 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 uh, exist and to to host all of our speech. So, we benefit in that way, sort of slightly indirectly, but users are also directly protected by Section 230 to the extent that they engage with third-party content. So to the extent that I might forward an email uh, via Gmail from someone else, and if that email has uh, the defamatory statement in it, the person who's been defamed can sue the original uh, email writer. They could also try to sue Gmail or Google and also try to sue me, but, but Google and myself should be able to get out of the lawsuit because Uh, again, the word user is also included in Section 230. If someone retweets a tweet that has actionable content, um, that retweeter should be protected, same as Twitter. But that
3: said, does this mean that there's really no reasonable way to go after the language in 230 without ultimately destroying these basic freedoms and protections, Daphne Keller? Uh, so,
4: if we're looking at the basic freedoms and protections of internet users, um, you know, Two Thirty is doing a tremendous amount of work to avoid a situation in which platforms go way overboard in um, taking down all kinds of lawful speech in order to avoid risk to themselves, and and we know from other legal regimes where platforms do have liability for user speech that that's exactly what they do we have stacks of studies showing you know well first we have many examples showing that situations like that generate a whole lot of false accusations. So, for example, a couple of years ago, the Ecuadorian government was caught using false copyright accusations to get critical journalism and videos of police brutality removed from major platforms like YouTube. Uh, and you know, the studies show that in the face of these false accusations, platforms do exactly what you would expect a reasonable self-interested actor to do, which is to err on the side of taking things down if there's any possible legal risk to themselves. Um, and so 230 protects us from that problem. We also know that there, um, when platforms set out to, you know, to moderate content or, or, or to act in the face of legal risk, there is often disparate impact in terms of whose lawful speech gets taken down. So for example, there was a study a couple of years ago of automated hate speech filters that discovered, what do you know, Black American English gets silenced improperly at a much higher rate um than than standard white American English. Um, and you know, so so this is the category of problems that are avoided, or at least we avoid having the law cause these problems through having the immunity for platforms. The flip side of that is the while they are, you know, we're avoiding a situation where they're gonna, you know, silence the next Me Too movement, for example, by um being scared of a defamation lawsuit and taking down MeToo posts, of course, they also have less incentive to take down content that actually is unlawful. So there's, there is a, a trade-off there, although many of the sort of um, worst unlawful things out there are not immunized by 230. So anything that is a federal crime, which includes uh, child abuse content, Um, and can include terrorist content uh, is not immunized by 230. The Justice Department can go after platforms anytime it wants to if if it thinks there are actually crimes taking place. So long and short, I do think 230 is doing a lot of work to protect the basic rights of Internet users as to whether there are other regimes that could do as well or that could be a different trade-off. Certainly, there are many other ways to come at that. You know, Europe approaches this differently. U.S. copyright law approaches this differently. There are many other models out there,
3: and we'll talk about what those, I guess, could potentially be and what their impact might be. Right after the break, stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking this hour at a pair of lawsuits that the Supreme Court heard this past week that basically argue that tech companies should be legally liable for harmful content that their algorithms promote. We're talking about it with Sophia Cope, Senior Staff Attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Daphne Keller, Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford Law School. You, Our listeners are invited to join the conversation. Have you been following these cases, particularly Gonzalez v. Google, where it deals with Section 230. Do you work in tech? Have you ever dealt with Section 230? Or have you considered it through your use of the internet? Perhaps you think there's not enough accountability for objectionable content online. What would you like to see happen? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum, or give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, and they go to caller Ron in Pittsburgh. Hi, Ron. How are you? Join us Ron.
6: I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Well. I like to make a few points. The first is, the First Amendment talks about freedom of speech. We've shorthanded it to free speech, but it's really freedom of speech, to speak or not speak. And with freedom comes responsibility. As a famous Supreme Court justice said, freedom is not the right, freedom of speech is not the right to yell fire in a crowded building. Another point I would make is that um, (laughs) because the social media companies are using algorithms, that puts them in the equation and hence liable. They aren't – it's like a teacher saying to kids, okay, line up, and the kids line up, and then the teacher shuffles the line, and – I would say that's illustrative of what the algorithm
3: does. Hmm. and I... Yeah. Ron, I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I want to ask Sophia actually to comment on this. First, can we just clarify what exactly these companies have with regard to a First Amendment right around the speech of terrorists or terrorist organizations? Because that's what's at issue in this case. My understanding is that YouTube or Twitter does not necessarily have a First Amendment right to promote the speech of terrorists, right? That's not what we're talking about when we're worried about infringement of First Amendment rights or or containing
2: freedom of of speech, right, Sophia? Um, I uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because this, this could be a little bit complicated, I guess. Um, uh, at <laughs> At one level, because these companies are private companies, they themselves have a lot of First Amendment leeway to kind of do what they want with content. Um, they themselves have First Amendment rights vis-a-vis the government. Like if the government were to come in and you know tell them what to do, right? Like that 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 would that would be a problem. Um, terrorism content itself, just as as a piece of content like pro-terrorism content isn't inherently illegal um it kind of depends on what is in that video um and when we're talking about assuming as as Daphne was saying assuming t- section 230 isn't at issue the plaintiffs are trying to potentially hold them the platforms responsible under the ATA and the ATA just generally says you can't um assist or in the sexually and substantially assist um, an act of terrorism, so uh, there potentially could be a First Amendment defense there, but it the, frankly the claims seem pretty weak just on the elements of the claim uh, in terms of you know did just hosting these videos did that actually amount to substantial assistance in terms of helping the ISIS. Uh, perpetrators conduct a specific a specific terrorist act. So I don't know if that answers the question, but there's sort of different layers. I don't Daphne, if you want to jump in.
4: Yeah, I mean I, I think an important First Amendment consideration here is there's just, you know, M- Mina, you talked about holding platforms accountable for objectionable speech. You know, in the range of speech that people think is objectionable. A little bit of it is actually illegal, you know, if it's defamation or it's fraud or, you know, it um, goes so far as to violate criminal laws. But there's this huge range of so-called lawful but awful speech, um, which many people find, you know, very morally objectionable. Um, You know, there is... uh, Uh, pro-anorexia speech, pro-suicide speech, pro-terrorism speech that is lawful, um, hate speech, much of what people would consider hate speech, like really vile stuff, is legal and protected by the First Amendment. Same with lots of what people would consider disinformation about health or even about elections can be legal and protected by the First Amendment. And so a, a lot of the Online content that many people want platforms to police and to take down. Um, The only way to hold them, you know, quote unquote, accountable for taking it down is through societal responses or economic responses. You know, advertisers saying "We, we don't want to put our ads next to this content, which absolutely happens. You know, there are sources of economic and societal pressure on platforms to take this stuff down, but you can't use because of the First Amendment, you can't use the law as a tool to make them take down this lawful but awful content and there's a lot of confusion about this you know i think um on the left and the right you know on on the left i think liberals often Democrats in Congress in particular often think, oh, if we just got rid of 230, then platforms would have to take down hate speech and would have to take down disinformation. Uh, In fact, The New York Times said without 230, platforms would have to take down hate speech. And then they had to run a correction (laughs) saying, oops, we meant because of the First Amendment. Um, So, you know, on on the left, we get people thinking if we got rid of 230, platforms would have to take things down, all these things down. That actually they wouldn't because there's no legal obligation to take down this lawful but awful speech anyway and then on on the right i think you know and we had these laws passed in texas and florida recently uh requiring platforms to leave up or attempting to require platforms to leave up um you know content like hate speech and disinformation i think those lawmakers did not understand just how vile this lawful content is that they are opening up their citizens to being exposed to. I think, you know, if if they if their constituents discover that, you know, suddenly teenagers are being confronted with pro-anorexia videos or their grandmothers are running into pornography when they were looking for dance videos on TikTok. You know, I don't think they will be very happy to discover what all that lawful but awful speech actually is. And it's a bit of a bind to be in as a society to have this widespread desire for this stuff to go away. Um, But you can't use accountable public government measures to do it. You have to rely on private companies to do it. And nobody likes that. But it's where we are legally.
2: And Mina, if I can make a a related point, Section 230 is often called immunity, not only from liability, but immunity from suit as well. So Daphne's absolutely right that if a platform is sued under whatever um, cause of action, they might have an ultimate defense, either under the First Amendment or under uh, just based on the the elements of the claim. Uh, but the idea is that if they can get out of the lawsuit early, even if they would win, uh, that... Is helpful because if they can't get out of a lawsuit early, and they have to spend millions of dollars on attorneys' fees and litigate a case to an ultimate win for them, maybe three three years down the line, that itself puts a burden, um, uh, of course, on the bigger platforms, but especially on the smaller platforms, they can't really uh, afford uh, to spend that much time and money defending these lawsuits, and so. Again, even if they would win at the end of the day, uh, just that legal exposure creates a huge disincentive for them to uh, provide these open platforms for people to 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 use, sort of without pre-filtering, without vetting. If in fact, uh, again, if two thirty were to go away, they would have to mitigate their legal exposure, and uh, the the. The internet we've we we've uh, grown to both love, I guess, and also hate to some extent. But just the idea that that anyone without technical expertise or uh, uh, the you know money to create their own you know host their own servers or to create their own kind of communication system, anyone can just go online, create an account, and speak to the entire world. And that's really really powerful. Without the companies coming in uh, before you can do that to see if you're worthy of, of, of being able to do that.
3: No, and that's where your free speech concerns come in. Mm -hmm. Well, this listener writes, why do you think the justices agreed to hear these cases, especially given that they acknowledge that they're not well-equipped to adjudicate them? I'm wondering why they did not want to let the lower court decisions stand. And of course, Daphne, the lower courts dismissed the Gonzalez suit, citing Section 230, as did, I think, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in the Gonzalez suit as well. So do you think the Supreme Court uh, is regretting now agreeing to hear these cases as they've waded into the complications and the very potential far-reaching, compli- uh, far-reaching impacts if they tinker or mess with 230? I think the
4: odds are very good that they're regretting taking these particular cases. Uh, I also think they're likely to, um, they would rather have some different 230 cases. I don't think they understood what they were getting into taking these particular ones. So, you know, Section 230 has become the most hated law in Washington and the most misunderstood in recent years. It is talked about constantly. There are op-eds about it constantly. Um, They There have been so many bills introduced in Congress to change it, but they, for the most part, never go anywhere because they are aimed in opposite directions. Uh, Democrats introduced bills that are aimed at getting platforms to take down more speech and uh, Republicans introduce bills that are aimed at preventing them from
3: taking down speech. So, Because they believe not. that these platforms have a bias against conservative speech. Yeah, essentially. Ex- okay. exactly,
4: okay. exactly. Um, and so, and, you know, at the Supreme court too, uh, Clarence Thomas has issued two, I don't know if you call them opinions, they're like voluntary commentaries on some other unrelated cases in which he uh, went on at great length about his criticisms of Section 230. So we know there is you know, very overt interest from Clarence Thomas and clearly from this cert grant, we, from their agreeing to hear these cases, we know that there's interest from some, some other justices and I would guess many of them because they read the news the same as everyone else, um, I think they're interested in looking at Section 230, where they, I think, got in over their heads and and now realize that these might not have been the best cases to take, is that they took cases with this added element of asking about recommendation and ranking systems. And suddenly they're getting all of these briefs from engineers trying to explain how ranking and recommendations work and how impossible it is to define a neutral ranking system and how fundamentally dependent, you know, so many parts of the internet are on algorithms and what a mess all the platforms would be if they weren't doing ranking and recommendation. And I don't think they understood that by taking this case, they were going to have to think about this whole other layer of issues on top of the basic 230 questions. And there's some chance that they just back out of it. Like they find an excuse either to dismiss the case as improvidently granted um, or to rule on such a narrow ground that they, you know, defer until another day some of the more complex questions.
3: Yeah. Well, well, Daphne, you're at Stanford, but you were in D.C., and you were attending the SCOTUS hearings the last few days, the Supreme Court hearings the last few days. Did you find that now that they've waded in and that they are realizing really what they have waded into? I mean, there were some comments by uh, Justice Elena Kagan, for example, where she was saying, whoa, wait, algorithms are endemic to the functioning of the Internet. Like, you need them to be able to at least coherently organize information at the very least. And maybe we shouldn't be messing with that part of Section 230 or using that as a way to mess with 230. Did you leave heartened? Because, you know, our justices are famously often described as not really being super tech savvy.
4: (laughs) I did leave heartened. Um, I mean, I'm a pessimist, so I won't be surprised if some crazy ruling with unintended consequences comes out of this all the same but um all of the justices asked smart thoughtful questions it was clear that they understood the gravity of of the situation the complexity of it um they asked questions that got to you know issues about um competitive impact and burden uh as um as Sophia was alluding to with smaller platforms, if CDA 230 changes, they asked questions about uh, what would it even mean for an algorithm to be neutral, which is a really good question because there's kind of no such thing as a neutral algorithm. Um and, and so that that was encouraging. Um, it also, you know, for stepping back away from the the tech law context, these were hearings that were not political in any observable way. These questions really cut across um, ideological priors in ways that are complicated and, and unpredictable. Um, and so this wasn't, you know, sort of bickering between the justices in ways that, that reflect obvious political divides. This really felt like um, smart people wrestling with difficult questions, uh, which is nice to see.
3: Well, listener Brian writes, unfortunately, the framers of Section 230 repeated the mistake of Adam Smith in framing our economy. That is in assuming people will be reasonable actors, and clearly enough are not, and they ruin it for most. Sophia, based on Daphne's description of the way that the hearings went, how do you think the justices will rule? Do you have any any sense of that?
2: Well, I was also heartened. I think all, a lot of us uh, in the pro Section 230 community were, you know, really, really nervous when these cases were taken up on cert. But I agree that in in, you know, three hours of questioning, for example, in the in, or, you know, back and forth oral argument in the Gonzalez case, the justices all on both sides of the political spectrum really seem to be uh fully engaging with the really, really difficult arguments and kind of in the moment, having it seemed like an aha moment that, oh, gosh, this truly is very, very complicated. And so I agree with Daphne that they they might just rule for Google and try to, like, get sort of get this off their plate, frankly. Um, and, you know, some of the specific com- comments were, you know, really on point. Uh, justice Kavanaugh, who, of course, is this, uh, considered a conservative justice, he very explicitly expressed concern about the economic fallout uh, if they were to narrow Section Two Thirty immunity, and um, and so I you know I thought that was really really on point. Uh, and then in terms of of so called neutral algorithms, uh, Justice Jackson, I I think she read our brief because we made this point, and I know other people did too. But uh, that newspapers in the pre digital world even, I mean, today, but, you know, particularly in the pre-digital world, like, they made ranking decisions. Like, the decision to put an article on page one versus page 20 is a so-called prioritization or, or ranking decision. It's it's trying to get people to read these articles on the front page and less concerned about people reading articles on the back page. And so uh, that has been considered a, a common editorial practice, that we consider to be within the the bounds of Section 230 immunity and that if the harm uh, to the plaintiff flows from third-party content, sort of irrespective of what the platform uh, does with that content or how it displays that content, that's when when 230 immunity should apply. So it seemed like the justices were understanding that and understanding the complexity and the the potential fallout. So, yeah, I agree. Sophia Cope. Sophia
3: Cope is the senior staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Daphne Keller is director of the program on platform regulation at the Cyber Policy Center at Stafford Law Center. We'll have more with them and with you, our listeners, telling us if you've been following the cases, what your questions are about them. If you feel like there is enough accountability for objectionable content online, or if you're worried about containment of a free and fair, free and open Internet as a result of, the way the justices might rule in 230. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking this hour at a pair of lawsuits that the U.S. Supreme Court heard this past week. They basically say that tech companies should be legally liable for harmful content that their algorithms promote, but it has some people worried, especially in the digital rights space, free speech advocates, and also, of course, the tech companies themselves. Sophia Cope of the Electronic Frontier Foundation is with us. Daphne Keller of uh, the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford Law Center is with us as well. And you, our listeners, are also with us. A couple more comments. The listener writes, if defamation and fraudulent speech is illegal, how is it there's still a plethora of posts up about the 2020 election being rigged and stating Biden is an illegitimate president? Another listener writes, perhaps these platforms should not be allowed to host more accounts than they can reasonably moderate. Yes, it might decrease their profits. But oh, well, I guess the question that I have, Daphne Keller, is if. The Supreme Court justices sort of heed all the concerns about messing with 230, then further messing with the Internet, potentially freedom of speech and so on and so on and access and so on and so on that you and Sophia have raised. Are they basically saying that? a very broad interpretation of Section 230 should stand, that it applies not just to content, but it applies also to the programs and algorithms that these companies produce that promote and sort and organize content as well, and that essentially that broad interpretation is fine.
4: Well, I think there if they um, wanted to not resolve these questions now, there are many ways for them to do that, Um, without committing committing to any answers right now. You know, they could rule that the plaintiffs don't have a claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act and then the questions about 230 are moot and not answer the questions about 230. Or they could rule very narrowly based on what the plaintiff has actually raised in like a procedurally adequate way so far in the case. This is where it's relevant that the plaintiff's claims and analysis kept changing because that gives an additional excuse if the court did want a very narrow ruling to say, we're not answering these 230 questions because they weren't actually presented properly. Um, But I think, you know, we heard several of the justices say, wow, this kind of seems like a question for Congress. Um, which is, you know, if you're a plaintiff, not not always what you want the, the justices to be saying. Um, but I think I think that's right uh, because I mean, certainly as a policy matter, I think that's right because if 2:30 just went away tomorrow, or if it went away for the um, the algorithmically ranked news feeds that are the heart of products like Twitter or Facebook, or if it went away for the recommended videos that are responsible for 70% of the views on YouTube, we would find these things that are basically the front page of the internet, suddenly denuded of any content that could possibly create liability for the platforms, and that would be a tremendous reduction in the value of these online spaces for people seeking to speak and find information, particularly on controversial topics. You know, again, like the Me Too movement, you know, couldn't possibly go go viral in that situation. And, and if you wanted to move away from that and say, we would like to recalibrate the balance and, you know, have platforms take more responsibility uh, for, finding illegal things and taking them down but we also don't want to have that collateral damage I think you can't you cannot avoid trade-offs but the only mechanics that we have for at least navigating the trade-offs and trying to protect speech while also getting more unlawful content down include procedural changes like um, having platforms notify users if they take content down because it was alleged to be illegal and giving the users a chance to object and having penalties for bad faith accusations or having courts get involved where there's ambiguity about whether speech is illegal. And all of those, these are things that we have for copyright in the DMCA. It doesn't work all that well, but it's certainly better than what we would have if 230 just went away. These are the things that are the mechanics of the big new platform law the EU just adopted. Um, in the Digital Services Act. Um, But those are things only a legislature can create. There isn't any way that through litigation in a post-230 world, somehow judges would create a right for uh, you you and me to find out if our speech was the subject of a false legal accusation and disappeared at at the hands of of YouTube. And in fact, it was uh, to me quite disturbing and I'm I'm interested to hear what, if Sophia has thoughts on this, particularly in the oral arguments on Tomna, the case under the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, it became very, very clear how much the platform's interests have diverged from the speech and free expression interests of of the users. So in that case, um, one of the justices asked, when should a platform be considered to have enough knowledge about terrorist content that, that we should make them liable for it? And the platform's lawyer answered, oh, if for example, the Turkish police came and told YouTube, that uh, certain users were terrorists or certain content was terrorist content, then the platforms would have enough uh, knowledge to face liability under US law. Then they would have a legal obligation under US law, which is kind of wild because on the same day as that oral argument, we got a really good indication of exactly how reliable Turkish police accusations of terrorism are. The Committee to Protect Journalists put out a report noting that Turkish police have accused 10 journalists of engaging in terrorism. And I think Twitter, which is the defendant in that case, Twitter has plenty of former employees who have dealt with allegations of terrorism from um, law enforcement in not just in countries like Turkey, where these accusations are notoriously problematic for free expression and for journalism in particular. But even the French police sent the internet archive takedown demands claiming content was terrorist content. And it turned out it was parody counter speech against ISIS in some cases and Grateful Dead songs in some cases. So there's just not a good record of police correctly identifying what content is unlawful. Mm. It also, it would be a prior restraint in violation of the First Amendment in the U.S. to have a system where it's police instead of courts coming along and saying what's unlawful. And the fact that the platform lawyers said that and that there was nobody up there arguing who even brought up the speech rights of users was kind of astonishing. Like it took Justice Kavanaugh to bring up the speech rights issues he he asked a question which kind of flummoxed lawyers who were standing up there which was well remember when CNN aired and this is pre 911 CNN aired an interview with Osama bin Laden and they knew that bin Laden had said he had quote declared war on the United States you know should CNN have been liable for aiding and abetting 911 subsequent acts of of you know, horrific terrorism. um, And the the lawyers didn't really have a good answer for that. And There's a huge free expression issue.
3: Yeah. And it was Justice Kavanaugh who was suggesting that really maybe this is Congress's role and not so much the courts to make any kind of changes to Section 230. Let me go to caller Carrie in San Jose, who's been waiting. Hi, Carrie, you're on.
7: Hi. Um, Thank you for taking my call. I was curious about how other countries are handling things. And I know she's gotten into that a little bit. Um, But it seems that the United States um, is the only country that gives so many constitutional rights to the corporate form thanks to the courts instead of uh, legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other
3: countries, how they handle it. You have alluded to that, Daphne Keller, so I'll go back to you quickly on that.
4: Sure. I mean, we're certainly an outlier in in corporate speech rights, uh, but we might be soon an outlier in the opposite direction in terms of protecting user speech rights. You know, we we had lawyers suggesting this week um, that platforms should take things down when police ask them to. By contrast, uh, the Supreme Court of Argentina said that would be a violate violation of free speech rights for Internet users. They said platforms shouldn't be deemed to have knowledge of unlawful content. Uh, unless a, you know, a court after due process decides that, that this is um, actually unlawful. There's a similar ruling from the Supreme Court in India, similar legislation in Chile and Brazil, again saying we don't want plat- risk averse platforms to be the ones deciding what to take down and this is a, a matter of, of user rights.
3: Well, Paul writes, companies should not be held liable simply for hosting objectionable content. But once they suggest or promote content, they are acting in the same role as a traditional publisher. Simply get rid of the, quote, you may also like part of the algorithms. What do you think about that, Sophia?
2: Well, Daphne was alluding to this earlier that... um Content has to be presented online, given particularly the scale, right? Like, And I was mentioning, even in the newspaper, the newspapers decide what stories they're going to put on the front page versus the back page, page, right? But then if you have, I don't know how many videos are on YouTube now, probably hundreds of millions of videos, they have to be presented in a certain way. And so if you uh, expose platforms to um, potential legal liability for the way in which they Present, uh, in this case, YouTube, in the way in the way in which it decides to present videos on its homepage, you know, targeted to users' interests or what videos they had looked at before. If, if that is now potentially legally actionable, they're not going to do that. And so, uh, I think Daphne said this in, a, in a, a great white paper she wrote that basically we would just have everything in reverse chronological order. I mean, how is that helpful? to any of us you know um and uh there is a benefit to being able to find other people and other pieces of content that are of interest to you well if
3: the courts are not the right place to make any amendments and congress is a better place potentially to make amendments to say section 230 or the communications decency act i'm just curious sophia what changes you think would be most helpful
2: um we don't want (laughs) any changes you you really don't yeah we we are we are we are we meaning the yeah EFF right 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 we have um been opposed to all of the proposals I mean what we say I mean which is true is that every proposal any proposal that comes up we will look at it objectively um but our perspective is always like how is this going to help internet users and promote their free speech and so their
3: access it sounds
2: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and and um so far, all of the proposals we've seen over the last, I don't know, five or seven years or whatever, uh, have have been contrary to that to that interest.
3: Do, Daphne, do you agree that there sh- really are no changes that mm-hmm. would be helpful to Section 230?
4: Well, I, I would say I don't want Congress to touch it because the last time they did this in a law called SESTA-FOSTA in 2018, they did an astonishingly bad job, just a job that didn't serve anyone's interest. They they were trying to, um, they did create liability for platforms uh, for commercial sex work and trafficking. Um, And they managed to, first of all, cause, you know, Craigslist took down their personal sections out of fear of liability. Tumblr had this big sweep and eliminated all kinds of sexual content that really had nothing to do um, with with what the law was trying to reach, um, and then at the same time, uh, sex workers to do things like check with each other about unsafe clients found their mechanisms for doing so going away. So there was harm to the people the law was supposed to protect mm. and harm to free expression. So I, I, this this causes me to worry about whatever Congress might do. Th- that said, you know if, if they could do a magic narrow thing, right now, it is the case that even if a court has adjudicated content as unlawful, um, platforms still don't have to take it down. I think it would be fine If, you know, after a court actually makes a decision, um, then that's a basis for removal. Although Mm. most platforms, many big platforms voluntarily follow court orders now. And that's prompted this small business of people forging and falsifying court orders. Mm. So, you know, all solutions have abuse.
3: We're talking about Internet speech. And this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Nomi in Los Angeles. Hi, Nomi. Thanks for waiting. You're on.
7: Hi, thank you. Um, I pretty much agree with your your guests. I'm concerned about any changes being made um, because I think the Supreme Court at this point is extremely biased, as as is Congress. I did have a question about the personhood of corporations and um, understanding that they were given sort of 14 amendment rights because they're considered people to some extent and they're Protected by the Equal Protection Clause, I'm, I'm assuming they're not considered citizens, per se, but I just wonder how that corporate, corporate personhood mm. impacts potentially Gonzalez or can inter, intersect in this discourse that we're having right now under the assumption, of course, that all these platforms are considered corporations. I'll take my answer off the air. Nomi, thanks.
3: What do you think, Sophia, with regard to the role of Citizens United and corporate personhood as being a factor in this case?
2: I mean, I, for me, I, I think the way it's most relevant uh, is, is what we were talking about earlier, which is that these private companies, they themselves have First Amendment rights vis-a-vis any kind of government regulation. So to the extent that... Um, the that congress might want to come in and try to regulate what what they do with user content they would have i believe uh the right to challenge any uh kind of law like that under the first amendment
3: well this is listener rights. could we envision a scenario where users of a website can opt into receiving algorithmically generated content like videos for example or you could say i don't ever want to see videos daphne keller
4: uh, sure. I mean, well, as a matter of what platforms could choose to do, they they could set it up that way. I think uh, what they have found is that users like it better when the platform, when the content is presented in some kind of useful order. I mean, that's what search results are, for example. If putting things in algorithmic order creates liability, then we don't have search results anymore. Um, but, you know, they've also found that users... Stick around longer and keep clicking longer um when news feeds or other ranked content is is presented in an order that's tailored to what appear to be that user's interest. And that prompts a criticism uh, about you know, if you are optimizing for keeping users engaged, uh, are you also does that mean you're always going to provide the most sort of emotionally provocative content or polarizing content or um, button pushing content, basically? Um, in order to keep people looking at the platform and and clicking on advertisements, and that's that is a, like a deep societal question about you know do we want platforms to give users what they want or do we want to override that and you know force users to sort of eat some vegetables along with all the junk food, the intellectual junk food we seem to crave. Um, but that that is that's a separate question. You know that is not something um, that is that is an issue in this case. I think. But I was. Yeah, go ahead,
3: Sophia. Final comment to you.
2: I was just going to say that EFF has always promoted user tools. Uh, we've en- encouraged platforms to, again, voluntarily, but we've put you know public pressure on them to to uh, create user tools so that way users can craft their own um, online experiences. So, uh, like on Twitter, for example, they I, you know instituted like the mute button and sort of the ability to for people to kind of just like you know shut block block people or, or or you know shut harassers down or whatever facebook has uh similar functionality so uh you know these tools are not perfect but we definitely uh want to encourage platforms to allow people to to have more control over their online experiences
3: Well, Sophia Cope of Electronic Frontier Foundation, thanks for letting us know about those tools. And thanks for being on today. Daphne Keller, director of the program on platform regulation at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford Law School. Thanks as well to you. And thanks to Susan Davis for producing today's segment. The forum team also includes Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, Marlena Jackson, Rotondo, Britain. Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, Lulu Ralda, Jericho Reininger. Our Vice President of News is Ethan toven Lindsay, and Chief Content Officer is Holly Kernan. You are listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kibb.
5: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,